Shalom. Welcome. Allow yourselves to settle and arrive. We will begin in one minute. Okay. I'm delighted that you are here with me now on our third parasha, Torah portion. We had Bereshit in the beginning of Genesis. Then we had Noah, a lovely story of the Teva and the flood. Not so lovely, but you, you know what I mean. And now we've moved into Lech Lecha, the master the master narrative of our ancestor Avraham, who starts off as Avram. So as always, before we begin, we set our kavanah, our intention. Shalom to you, welcome. Uh, we begin our kavanah, our intention for today's practice. I always share first by screen. Share if you have vision and are watching on video or here live with us on live stream on YouTube or on Facebook or here on Zoom. And for those of you who don't have vision or will be listening just to the podcast, just to audio, you can hear me read these kavanot, these intentions. So we say we see this act that we're doing together here at Awakening Torah, Musar, Mindfulness, where we're at Awakening Lech Lecha, 5783 of the Jewish year and the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar, um, that we're really engaging in an act of radical self-care while caring for the other in relationship, in taking refuge in community and uh, with the divine. And so it's a really a beautiful uh, community and practice together. So uh, we start with that intention that this is something I am doing to strengthen my own soul in order to be a benefit to others in the future. And then we also say this is something that we are doing to strengthen our relationship to others so that we can be a better conduit to God's good to others when they need us just kind of the whole points of life in some ways. And finally, we're doing this to strengthen our relationship with the divine. However you define the divine or that relationship, and we say, this is something I'm to strengthen my relationship with God so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. So may we merit today in our practice of learning the parasha, the Torah portion called Lech Lecha, get up and go, <laughs> that um, we do it from the lens of Musar mindfulness, our specialty here at the Institute for Holiness, Kehilat Musar, to really gain the wisdom of these united traditions uh, to get the most out of this text, what our ancestors want us to learn, what the divine does, and then apply it to our lives and practice. We will move into a guided mindfulness meditation practice afterwards. And then of course, I will leave you with practice during the week. This year, we are being guided by uh, Jamie Arnold's wonderful Torah Tamima, which I will explain towards the end. So let's jump in. 
Obviously, for those of you who are new to join us, we can't cover everything in the Torah portion. They're too large, too many stories. And so if you're new to us in this whole method, basically you want to read the Torah portion before you join us. If you belong to any type of community that reads it out loud or studies it in the week beforehand, please do so. And then we cover this Sunday, Yom Rishon, what we learned and studied in synagogue or in communities uh, on Shabbat, on Saturday, yesterday. Okay, so we're covering Lech Lecha, which was on November 5th, even though today is November 6, 2022. And I want to make sure that I also tell us that um, today is the 12th of Cheshvan of 5783. So here we go. If you haven't looked at Bereshit and Noach, please do so on your own time so you can start seeing the thread that we are going to build together this year, that there's going to be a very strong theme that we will hold and practice together. All right. May Hashem help us here, right? We say, Simata uh, Tava, may this be a good sign. So after it, we have, we're now 20 generations later from Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, 20 generations later, 10 generations later, it was Noah, Noah and the flood. And now we're 20 generations later and we have Avram. Okay. He first goes by Avram. His name's changed later to Avraham. So after the people back, if you think back to this story of Noah and the flood and coming out and having to repopulate the world, um, the people are essentially commanded, Noah and his family, and then those of their descendants, to spread out, to actually go out to all corners of the planet, uh, to inhabit it and to repopulate it, to be fruitful and multiply. And they didn't follow this command. And you may recall the incident of the Migdal Bavel, right? Where the people wanted to stay close together, build together, protect each other, probably in response to the collective intergenerational trauma of the flood and the aftermath. So uh, you essentially now with Avram and Lech Lecha have an individual who listens to this command. He goes out, right? He leaves all that he knows. He leaves his country. He leaves his father's home, right? He leaves his land. He leaves, and not even in that order. It's like country and then his land and then his father's home. He leaves all that he knows, all right? And um, he doesn't settle, right? He's constantly moving. He's a nomad. And in some ways, He's a bit of an orphan, even though when he comes onto the scene, he's technically 75 years old. He's a bit of an orphan. He's left his family and all that he knows. Okay. Obviously he has his new spouse and those who follow him, his wife, his nephew, Lot, eh, Sarai, who is his partner, his wife, and others who follow so what is the first thing that comes to mind that, uh, that the rabbis and in our tradition are going to struggle with? And you might even be thinking too, who is this Avram, right? Who is this Avram? Why, who is he? Why, why, why is he selected? 
Why is he on the scene? Why does he listen to the commander to go out and be kind of a nomad, right? So basically our sages in Midrash are acutely aware of this immense gap in the Torah and the story, right? And it, they decide to tell us what they either know from tradition passed down or uh, have decided to tell themselves uh, what they're trying to fill in of Avram's life, that, that God spoke to him beforehand, uh, that he um, essentially was in a family that, of idol, worship, uh, idol worshipers and had, he was against it and fought against it. Uh, all these things that... Um, wanted to show that he made a radical departure from his birth family and how they lived and practiced and how the people around him did. Okay, so in a way he's a bit like Noah in the sense that uh, he does not behave like all those around them. We don't know anything about Noah's family, his birth family, but there's some similarities there, right? So, um, we just, from the Torah text itself, we don't have this information, right? We really don't know um, anything so much about him, um, but that is going to be part of what draws uh, the attention of our ancestors of trying to fill that. But I actually want to challenge us. I'll share one more thing with you. So here, this is a wonderful uh, paragraph from JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, and page 88. It says, God's election of Avraham, which first starts as Avram, right? The story of Avraham opens with an identifying formula, with, without, without an identifying formula. No preliminary observation that actually introduced Noah. Instead, Avram, our future patriarch, right, of the Jewish people and of humanity in general, right? He burst upon the scene of history with astounding suddenness. The first 75 years of his life are passed over in total silence. 75 years. God's call comes in in an instant without forewarning or preparation. It is a brief and compelling in its commands and Avram immediate response marks the true beginning of his life and the true beginning of our engagement with Avraham and our are getting to know him, okay? So um, this is what we uh, start here. So this is what I want to posit for us. I don't think we need Avram to be someone special and unique and different from all those around him. I don't think we need him to have gone through the, furry, the fiery furnace of Nimrod and survived, which is a Midrash story. I don't think we need the story of him smashing his father's idols. It's not that we don't benefit from these and learn about him, but I think there's a much more radical idea and departure that we can go with here, which is Avram is simply a human being like you and like me. He's a human being that listened to the call was aware, was mindful, and had the courage, the bravery to go forward and do so and follow such commands. And that's essentially in some ways what we are doing daily in our practice of Musar Mindfulness. We are regular human beings on this path towards holiness. 
hoping that we are awake and alert to the call of our purpose, what's commanded of us to do, to take care of others. And that's how I like to see Avram. And if we pay close attention to him as we get moved further into my teaching with you today, we're going to find a really human. And what do I mean by that? It, he, he makes mistakes. He uh, lies. He um, Later, when he becomes Avraham, we'll have a whole other issue to deal with in next week's Parsha. <laughs> I won't address that now. Uh, but he is someone who um, really learns from his experience in life. He's really into what we would call experiential education, meaning he, 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 he moves through life and embodies it and learns from it. So let's jump in and see how this is the case for him. All right. So um, I want to say one very important thing is I want us to pay attention that Avram doesn't actually, um, his faith in God and his willingness to act and be and do and be of service to do avodah for God is not based uh, so much on promises and miracles by God. God definitely gives him promises and does miraculous things, which we'll, dis we'll discuss what those are. Um, but that's not where his faith is. His faith is the step-by-step daily living the path, learning from his mistakes in the path, continuing to be in relationship with God instead of abandoning it when it, it actually doesn't go well or the promises are not fulfilled or, um, you know, a, a, a worry, the storytelling, the fear, essentially, that the miracles will run out. It, he doesn't do that, right? There's, in a sense, an unconditional love an unconditional uh, way of being in relationship with God. And this is where I think that he's beautiful. His soul is beautiful. We have much to learn from him, okay? I say we embrace the humanness, right? The, 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 so much inush, uh, right? This uh, quality of him, of, of a mensch. So what happens? We get to know Avram after he actually goes to war with four kings. And you might be thinking, wow, really? Like what, what's, what's happening, right? He goes to war with four kings, all right? And, and you might be thinking, people who read this part of the Parsha might be thinking, what is this story really about? Why do we have to read this of Avram traveling like thousands of miles, hundreds of miles at least, way up past the border of modern Israel uh, to to redeem his nephew, Lot. He goes out of his way to go and redeem him, okay? And so he goes to war with four kings who had kidnapped Lot from Sodom and took him north, okay, essentially. So what's the purpose of this story, right? This is kind of incredible. And it, undoubtedly what we're taught is that the, I think the primary motive is basically to bring this prominence of new facets of Avram, uh, his character, who he is and his character traits, all right? So JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, on page 103, 103, teaches us, Avram, who displayed fear and evasiveness in Egypt, 
which you might recall the story of Egypt that he had to go down during a famine. He was totally fearful that he was going to be killed. He asked his sister to lie and say that she, uh, I'm sorry, his wife Sarai, he asked her to lie and say she was his sister. I mean, in some ways she is his half-sister, but he did that to save himself because he thought he would be killed by the Egyptians for being the husband, okay? So he was fearful and he was evasive and he lied, okay? And that's how he was in Egypt. Now this story of this war with the four kings shows himself to be decisive and courageous in the promised land. The man, Avram of peace, suddenly knows how to exhibit skills and heroism in battle. He who experienced actually his nephew's estrangement, they ended up having to depart Lot and Avram because they had too much cattle and the people who were taking care of their cattle couldn't get along. They couldn't share the soil of the land. This might sound familiar coming 20 generations later. And they had, to, they had to part. So he basically experienced his nephew's estrangement unhesitantly, right? And now he demonstrates self-sacrificing loyalty to him in his hour of need. He's willing to risk his own life and all that comes with Avram to save Lot. Avram is a, mere, a military hero, but he's never glorified as such. He does not, or others do. He's drawn into it, and he acquits himself against enormous odds. And then, towards the end, he will not accept the wealth from the war right? Nothing about him, essentially, right? Nothing deters him. The size, when we don't get any of this information in the story about the size of the opposing armies, the weapons that might have been used, the mode of transportation, the number of casualties, the content of the booty, none of this, right? None of this that, that's actually staple ingredients in other ancient Near Eastern stories, the war chronicles of the Near East. Instead, the story of Avram going to war with these four kings in order to redeem his nephew, Lot, serves to emphasize the values, the virtues of Avram, of loyalty to family, the redeeming of captives, the disdain for material reward and the faith in the power of the few against the many. It's a beautiful paragraph because suddenly we're getting a much more complex picture of Avraham Avinu, who will become Avraham Avinu, right? This is Avram. He's someone that was fearful and lies and hides, and now he's really brave and he's trying to take care of his family. There's this complex human being emerging, right? And he will do this with us. We will see this dance. He will fail us here and we'll feel it and not want it. And then he will redeem himself. This happens over and over again, right? But what happens is so important afterwards. This, where, this is where it really shows who he is. Besides all this, this of course shows us what this is. These are all meets vote that we should all aspire to, commandments to live like how Avram did. Uh, but this is the key one. In chapter 15, verse 1, we are taught that Avram is actually fearful. 
And this is after the war, after what would seem to be a victory. Now, Nachama Lebowitz and her unbelievable knowledge and breadth and depth of Torah teaches us there's really no such thing as victory in war because the seeds, the germs are, have been planted essentially for the next war. And that's really profound. That really ties into our teaching of harm and suffering from the Theravada tradition that once you cause the harm and suffering of war, essentially, that you even a just one, that you had to fight to save someone, there are consequences that will potentially be visited on you either by those who survived the war or their descendants. Uh, so Avram here has intense fear. And uh, our ancestors, of course, kind of the rabbis trying to figure out what is this fear, right? And how do we know that he's even fearful? God appears to him in a vision and says, fear not, Avram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great, shall be very great. I don't think Avram's someone motivated by reward. I don't think God's figured this out yet. But um, what we try to figure out is what is he so fearful of, right? And so we conjecture that he's fearful that the kings that lost the war and their descendants will eventually come back for revenge. Um, he's fearful, and this is a beautiful one, that he's possibly murdered, killed in war, committed homicide against someone who is innocent and righteous. Now, I don't even think Avraham would limit it to someone who is uh, righteous and innocent. I think he would be troubled by, as anyone who's actually fought a war usually is, that they've murdered anyone, that they committed homicide against anyone, because you have to live with that you've taken a soul created in the image and likeness of God. And so that's enough to be fearful of. That's enough to live with that, that your hands have blood on them, that they're stained, even if it was for a righteous act. And I think this is what we're witnessing with Avram here. This is the fear, right? He's, he knows that he's becoming, one, he's becoming 10 times more human, right? And there, there's something painful about that sometimes. But I think he's fearful that the more human he becomes, the more stained he becomes and being human, which we all have to do, that maybe that will distance him from the path. Maybe that will distance him from his relationship with God. And that's, I think, the fear, right? And we all have that. If we've all sinned, which we all have, depending on the sin and how much and where, we all fear that maybe we've just gone too far. Maybe this can't be forgiven. Uh, maybe this will stay with us. Maybe this has kind of created a blemish, a sin on us, a stain on us, a ketem in a sense. So I think that's what's going on here. Um, so in closing on this teaching today, uh, I want to say, um, bring you a couple more teachings, essentially, that um, that um, Buber wants to teach us something in the sense that Avram is someone who breaks out of his habituation and attachment to the soil. Why am I bringing this up? Because it was Adam who was basically kind of cursed to work the land for the rest of his life. And it was going to be difficult. And he was the, he's the father of all humanity. So essentially we all are that like toiling with that soil. 
And his own son, obviously, Cain, ends up committing homicide against his own brother, Hevel. He's someone who worked the fruit, essentially, of the trees or the fruit of the soil. And in, you find our ancestors struggling with this relationship with the soil, his consequence, his punishment for murdering or in this case, committing homicide against his brother, Hevel, is that he loses the privilege to be in relationship with the land. He must wander now forever. And this is essentially who Avram becomes, not because he murdered someone or committed homicide, but because he's been now commanded, lech lecha, go, right? Essentially be a nomad, be this orphan. Don't be tied to the soil, which is very against everything that we had for the previous 20-ish gen generations, right? So he takes his family out. And I think here that we're witnessing that God's realizing that this is maybe what has to happen with the human, at least at that time in, in history, for them to behave in the ways that God envisioned and desired. Now, Buber, a famous Jewish philosopher, says to us that Noach stayed put in nature, building the Teva, it really, in some ways, I said, how could he really be anything else, essentially, right? After God set the path for Adam and humanity just 10 generations earlier. But Buber wants us to really understand that Noah is the man of the soil who is rescued from the deluge, from the flood. And, and if anything, maybe Avram is essentially rescued from the soil and being um, tied to it, being almost a slave to it in the sense that that is the curse that Adam must do. So let's just hold that in mind about our beloved Avram and how he travels and what he does. So what, what, what happens? Why, why, is this, why is this relationship with him so important? What, why are we, what are we going to do with him? So let's just say something beautiful is stated here that will affect us the rest of our lives and still does thousands and thousands of years later, which is God says, I will bless you to Avraham. You shall be a blessing because I've blessed you. Then I will bless them that bless you. And then you shall be blessed. Lots of brachot, lots of blessings going on here, right? Quite beautiful. So what does that mean? Who is this person? Right? He's being blessed. He's going to be a blessing to all of us, all of humanity and to the Jewish people. And we who bless him, which a lot of us do, both Jew and non-Jew, um, um, we'll be blessed through him and then we'll all be blessings. We'll be like this pay it forward, this beautiful uh, gaga, this wheel of blessing. Okay, there's something beautiful about that. So um, all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And he's really the source of blessing, as I said. Even in our Jewish tradition, if you're not aware of this, we even say traditionally to our sons, but I also say it to my daughter, it, we say, may God make you like Avram, Avraham, it, it, among the other ancestors that we list. It, some say like Avram, to be honest with you. And um, so basically, what does it mean to bless and to be blessed and to be a blessing? 
So it's to be aware and mindful of each act we do. This comes from Avram Davis uh, in the wonderful book, Genesis, the book with 70 faces, a guide for the family by Esther Takak. And he says, to our awareness of each act, we add joy. We begin to see how simple things such as eating, drinking, helping a friend, providing hospitality, visiting a scholar, forgiving an enemy, are blessed by God. And so our consciousness is elevated that we ourselves feel blessed by this joy, wonder, splendor, and peace. And Naomi Rosenblatt says a blessing is really unconditional love. Okay, when we bless, we become blessed and it, it, it moves forward. It's quite beautiful. So I want to uh, share uh, one or two more things and make sure that I cover everything with you. Um, 62, I have that. Um, so I want to go back and conclude with this. This is quite amazing here. Um, I, I'll conclude what I think is so special about him, what we need to remember for our own practice. But I wanna begin with, um, for those of us, essentially, it, we read the Torah looking for the beginning of the Jewish people and also humanity. It's really here in the story of Avraham and Sarah uh, that we find our first father and mother. And I want us to look at the question of uh, what does the story tell us about them as our first parents? So I want to uh, just briefly say, let's think back to our first first parents of all of humanity, of Adam and Chava, our first parents tried hard, were very innocent, and lied, and also didn't take responsibility, and had to live with that kind of karmic consequence, right? When they didn't tell God the truth. And then their descendants kind of perpetuated that, right? And we think 10 generations later, Noah, if we think of him as a father and his wife, that we don't actually hear her name in the Torah, it, they're someone that it, did exhibit, they followed God's, uh, their, the commands, but they had difficulty, right, in their family relationships. And this is not a bad thing, none of this is, but it's just to record that in all of our family histories, we're going to have relatives and perhaps even parents who are complicated. And what's beautiful about it and important to the practice of Musa mindfulness is that we have models that we emulate who in their very humanness, when they do make mistakes, learn from them and behave differently in the future and next time. And so this is what we see with Avraham and Sarah, particularly Avraham and particularly Avram, right? He's more honest. Uh, with his partner, even though he might lie to the Pharaoh and his quarters in Egypt, okay? Um, he's really informed by his experience of the war he, and the harm and suffering that he caused. He's really informed by his experience of having to leave his whole family and being a nomad and essentially an orphan and turns into what we call a gare, a stranger, 
he dwells in other people's land and moves around and is a nomad. And a stranger is the most vulnerable in this society. So he's very much informed by that experience. And it really shapes how he sees the world, who he advocates for, who he believes in, who he turns to, who he tries to help. And so this is all uh, to summarize uh, for us. This is the Avram emerging. And this is who will become Avraham. And, and I will just say in, in conclusion uh, of this teaching today that he was so beautiful. This is one of the most beautiful things about him. So here's all these promises God makes, right? All these miracles of, uh, you know, accompanying him as a nomad on the road, making sure he's safe going down to Egypt, saving his wife from being raped and taken as a captive wife by uh, Pharaoh. Uh, he, these are all miracles. Uh, the fact that he wins a war against four kings, that he's able to redeem his uh, his uh, nephew Lot. Okay, so here this is someone who's really not going to be moved by promises and miracles. And this should you've got to hold on to this because what's coming down the road? If you remember the cycle last year, a people will be born from this man known as the Hebrew people, as the Jewish people. And when they're in the desert and when they come out of the institution of slavery, they too will not have their faith be, be based in promises and miracles, even though we expect them to and maybe even want them to. So here's Avram. He says, God, you promised me a land, but how do I really know that I'll get it? He says this in Bereshit, chapter 15, Pasuk 8, verse 8. Then he says, God, you told me I'd have lots of children, that I would have uh, descendants as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand, but I don't see any. Sarai and I have no children. This is in Bereshit, chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. He has questions. He has doubts, right? But what does he do with it? He doesn't just let it sit and eat at him, right? Cause his own internal harm and suffering. Instead, he turns to God. He turns to God with this lack of faith, with this, these questions, with these struggles, right? He brought them directly to God, almost like an offering, like a korban. <laughs> here, God, here are my worries. I don't really think you're following through in the promise. I don't like... I don't, where is all this really? Okay. And he, he brings it to God and that brought him closer to God. God was full of joy that Avram turned to him with these worries and struggles and lack of faith. God didn't punish him because he had a lack of faith. God was patient with it. Right. And, and this is a beautiful, this is Avram modeling for God and for us how to be upright how to stay in relationship, even when we have a lack of faith, that we don't withdraw, that we don't give up, that we don't react and punish. And so let's watch this with God. God's able to do this with one individual. But when God moves to a people who will question, who will struggle, the people don't know how to bring their lack of faith to God. Instead, it comes as usually is anger and complaining, but it's very fear-based, right? 
but God's not able to accept those as an offering. God is not able to establish a connection through the lack of faith, the lack, the fear, but he's able to do it with Avram. And so we're hoping in our own relationships that one, we learn from Avram, but we also learn from where it doesn't go well with groups of people between God and B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. And that we may we today in our practice and every day do this tikkun, do this repair. It's really a global generations repair that we are able to accept people's offering of their lack of faith, of their struggles, of their questions, and not take it personally and allow it to be a, a connection, a kesher to strengthen our relationship with others and, and, and to be able to um, listen to them and provide support and not react. Because when that happens, what happens to Avram? Very language that's used. It's so beautiful, if I can find it for you, is essentially that right here, he had faith. And sent, like after he turned to him and kind of dumped all this fear and, and questions, he had faith in God and Hashem. And it was considered sadaka. It, it was considered righteousness. It was considered a, what is merit, what is upright, that to go through that lack of faith, that ring of fire that we all have to go through to be able to admit where we're vulnerable, where we might have fear and questions, right? To turn to those that we love and admit it and to turn to God and admit it, that will strengthen our relationship with others and with God and the divine. It'll strengthen us. And this is what we've learned today from Lecha and Avram. Beautiful, beautiful example. So let's move into our practice. We move into a guided mindfulness meditation. You're welcome to assume one of the four postures. If you're new to meditation, uh, please just follow my guidance and uh, we will go from there. So if you're like me and you're in a seated upright posture, please plant your feet firmly in the ground held by the earth between heaven and earth so that you feel really held, okay? Really here, present. Allow your hands to rest wherever it's comfortable for you. Sitting up, beautiful, strong posture because you are created in the image and likeness of the divine. If you feel safe and comfortable, you can close your eyes if you have vision. Otherwise, just lower your gaze. And we'll begin with three deep cleansing breaths. Inhalation. Exhalation, allow. Allow any attention in the body to leave. Inhalation. Exhalation. And one more deep breath. Inhalation, the gift of oxygen from God. And exhalation, we are beginning to settle and arrive and come to stillness. The gift of this practice 
to be here sharing this breath together, really learning to be a witness to all that arises and passes. Allow the breath to settle, no need to control it. Watching whatever arises for you, whether it's thoughts, sensations in the body, emotions, learning to become the witness to yourself, a friend, being able to just watch what happens without reactivity, allowing yourself to watch without judgment. No need to change any story that might be happening. No need to react. No need to push it away. Everything that arises has a certain shelf life and then it passes. And this is part of what we learn in this practice. From time to time, you will hear me go silent. It's just allowing an opportunity for us to sit in silence, to witness what is before us. So I want you to take this moment right now in silence and ask yourself, how was that for me? What came up for me listening to this teaching? Maybe what's coming up for me right now, even in this sitting practice. Simply begin again. If your thoughts wander, if you're not in the present moment, each week we will give ourselves the gift of practice in addition to our mindfulness meditation, we will use the method called Torah Tanima from a beloved rabbi and teacher named Jamie Arnold, who teaches first. We want to engage whatever mida, whatever soul trait is coming up for us in response to each Torah portion. And so the last two weeks with Bereshit and with Noah, we focused on humility, on anava of how much space we take up and our self-esteem, our self-worth, really trying to notice what's real for us and where our work is, where we might have to find some balance. And what we noticed this week with Avraham, first Avraham, is I would venture to say that he is balanced in anava, of humility, at least in this Torah portion of Lechacha. He takes up the proper amount of space. He makes room for others. He asks for permission from his wife. He tries to navigate such the difficult terrain of life where sometimes we have to hide or lie or even go to war. And so we learn from him this week. We will continue with humility, with anava, 
looking if we are balanced or if we lean towards arrogance or low self-esteem. For those of us leaning toward either extreme, our practice is to really begin to internalize daily that we are created in the image and likeness of the divine. That that spark is in us. We've been given that gift of knowledge to know that from Bereshit, from the first Torah portion that we covered. The second part of the practice is to do a mitzvah, a commandment, which we have chosen to make sure to let those in our life know where they are strong. We practice what's called ayin tova, good eye, where we let them know what we love about them, what we seek to emulate. Perhaps it's a spouse who's very generous or a friend who is kind, or maybe it's the neighbor who is compassionate. So we let them know that. And the final part of the practice is our own avodah, our own service, the intrapersonal practice of mindfulness meditation, where we really take this time of self-care to build our self-love and self-care and compassion, self-compassion that really over time will build our love and our balanced humility. So today in today's sitting, I invite you to repeat the metta Chesed loving kindness phrases after me. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in body and mind and spirit. May I be of service to all who need me. May I be kind to myself. May I accept myself as I am. May I accept life as it is. Now we say to Avraham Avinu, who went first as Avram, that you be filled with loving kindness as you showed us. You modeled for us and rescuing lots, your nephew. May you be safe, Avraham, from inner and outer dangers. You showed us such bravery and courage in going to war against the four kings. May you be well in body and mind and spirit. May you forgive yourself 
for lying about Sarai. May you forgive yourself for having to ask your wife to lie and say she was your sister. May you forgive yourself for being estranged from Lot. May you forgive yourself for your lack of faith, for your struggles with God. May you be at ease. May you accept your reward. Now we say to ourselves, may we learn from Avram. May we emulate, emulate his uh, beautiful midot, his deeds and his character traits. Allowing the next two minutes to sit in silence. I will ring the bells when we are to come out of our meditation practice today. Gently and slowly open your eyes if they were closed. Come back to this shared Zoom space or on live streaming together. I want to thank you for your practice. May you give yourself an inner bow for your practice, an inner bow to your teachers, to God, to this path that we are able to share and practice and use our mindfulness together. I'm Rabbi Chasio Uriel Steinbauer, the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Kehilat Musar. And again, you are joining us on Awakening Lech Lecha 5783, Torah Musar Mindfulness. So grateful to have you. If you have any questions or comments or would like to share how this was for you, Please unmute yourself and do so. Otherwise, I will give a bow to you and say thank you. And may you join us next week at the same time, Bizrat Hashem, God willing, on Sundays at 1230. Todavaba, me of course, Vivakisha. Thank you. God bless. Take care.